It has been a tumultuous time in the United States. The country continues to reel from the impact of COVID-19 and confusion and disinformation from the election is running rampant. You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Amidst the growing health crisis, almost 150 million Americans voted in the US presidential elections, a record turnout in the country's history. An election win in Pennsylvania saw Joe Biden declared president-elect over the weekend. President Trump has still not conceded, but has instead fired off a barrage of legal challenges. He's also fired Defense Secretary Esper and appointed several loyalists to senior positions in national security. Anastasia Capetis speaks to Peter Harcher, political and international editor at the Sydney Morning Herald, to unpack the US elections and these many developments since. Hi everybody, my name is Anastasia Gapetis. I'm the National Security Editor here at The Strategist. Today uh, we've got uh, as our guest Peter Harcher and we're going to talk all things American election. In a normal world things would have been over by now, everyone would have uh, congratulated the President-elect, but things aren't going in that direction. Of all the things that have been said about Donald Trump, nobody's ever said it's normal. Uh, normal world in Trump world, have they? They certainly haven't. So just in the last 24 hours, we've seen some more unprecedented, in scare quotes, actions um, from Trump around the defence and security establishment. So firing ESPA, uh, replacing uh, ESPA and a couple of other senior officials in the Pentagon with loyalists, uh, one of whom uh, is a known conspiracy theorist who got rejected by the Senate um, last year. Uh, We have also seen uh, movement at the Department of Justice, the head of election fraud resigning um, because he didn't like his new orders. Um, from Barr about uh, investigating Democrat fraud. And uh, we've also seen an, a new appointment at the NSA. So a senior legal counsel at the NSA, that position has now gone to, again, a Trump loyalist who has been working in the administration for the last couple of years. What's the significance of those actions? A few weeks ago, Francis Fukuyama, the world's most famous political scientist, for good reasons and bad, was telling me that uh, he has the two ways that he envisages the Trump White House. One, he said, is it's like a mafia family that has taken over the White House and just f- uses its power to extract money and direct it to its friends and allies. The second is, he said, it's like a, a third world dictator has taken over the White House. Uh, the conduct we see in the White House today fits that model better. Uh, this is the action of a third world dictator who's lost an election, who refuses to concede. And the, those movements that you've described, the things he's doing with the security establishment, suggest a president who really is serious about not acknowledging a result that he doesn't like. And he's told us consistently for four years he would, not, he would never acknowledge any result that he didn't like. People seem to think he's not serious about it. Remember, this is a president who more than any in living memory has actually followed through on his election promises. So why should we doubt him that he's serious about trying to hold power unconstitutionally? It looks like a takeover of the security establishment to keep himself in office. It was only a couple of months ago uh, during the Black Lives Matter protests that he ordered the Pentagon to put troops on the street under the Insurrection Act to act against US citizens. And the reason Mark Esper, the Defence Secretary, has just been sacked is because he said no. Uh, So Trump is now putting, as you say, Anastasia, a loyalist in the job to do what he says. This has every appearance of a president who's preparing to stay on by unconstitutional means. 
So what does um, the Pentagon do now if it's given an, an unconstitutional order by the President? Well, in that case with the Insurrection Act, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs backed up the Defence Secretary, Mark Esper, and just said this is not domestic. <laughs> you know, what happens on the streets of America is not our business. We defend the democracy against external enemies. But if there's a new loyalist Defence Secretary instructing the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs to proceed with a, an unconstitutional order to put troops on the streets, we don't know. This has been on the brink of a constitutional crisis now ever since Trump said to Esper under the Insurrection Act, put troops mm. on the street. This is unresolved. We don't know. And it's, it's just um, spine-chillingly ugly. So, of course, many um, ex-senior defence officials in the United States have come out very strongly uh, over the last year and particularly in the last two weeks to say this president is a a danger to America's national security, um, to democracy around the globe. Uh, What will they be doing? Um, These are people like William McRaven who are heroes in the US Armed Forces who have deep, deep networks within within the Pentagon and, uh, you know, within the broader armed services what will they be doing and how powerful might they be as a restraining force? Well, they do and must have the ability to exert some restraint. From everything we've seen about Donald Trump and his modus operandi in the last four years, they have no ability to influence Donald Trump and Trump world. So it holds the prospect and possibility, which I dearly hope is averted, of a constitutional and and unconstitutional (laughs) power struggle with the military at its centre, just like in a tin pot, third world dictatorship. And in a conversation I had with John Bolton, his former Trump's former national security advisor a couple of weeks ago, he said that when he was national security advisor, he said, honest to God, I had no idea whether Trump was actually going to abrogate the NATO treaty. He said, you know, it was that hit and miss. It was that near, near miss, I should say. And this was the national security advisor. Trump still wants to abrogate the NATO treaty. Will he make that sort of announcement? Will he attempt, as he said during rallies just a few weeks ago, in rally after rally to his base, I'm going to bring all the troops home? Does he start ordering more troop withdrawals from the field? Does he start ordering the closure of base, bases in Japan? I mean, all of these things are on his agenda. And he's t- positioning himself as a president who's just won an election. Lord knows what madness we're about to see unfold and Lord knows how much madness he's going to get away So how does Australia deal with a scenario where madness is unleashed? Well, (laughs) when sanity was unleashed (laughs) with the um, election of Biden, I can tell you this, the Prime Minister and other senior ministers who have to deal with the US were immensely relieved. As uh, Scott Morrison said to, to colleagues, we got through it. As in, thank God we got through it. (laughs) We got through that four years. They woke up every morning in trepidation about what they might find Donald Trump's administration was going to deliver Mm. that day. They were in a constant state of anxiety, which they did pretty well to conceal. They did. And they managed their relationship through all that pretty well and got less harm done to us directly than I would submit any US ally maybe except for Israel. What does Australia do if, in fact, it gets worse and deteriorates and the sort of scenario we've just been speculating about, um, you will see Scott Morrison trying very hard to say nothing. If it deteriorates to something unimaginably bad, 
he will feel obliged, I suspect, to make a public mm. uh, intervention. They'll only do it in coordination with other US allies, by the way, which is what they've been doing so far. But then to, to talk about our democratic values, I presume, and the, the ties that bind and the, and the common uh, interests that we have. But it's a difficult one and he will do his best to avoid having to intervene at all. So let's talk a little bit about the kinds of things that enable this kind of behaviour um, in, in a society like the US, and that is uh, social media and the kinds of disinformation that can spread so incredibly quickly and have such huge impact on the Republican base. And the example I'm looking at here is um, the Stop the Steal narrative, um, which rose, it really rose up just, just after um, Election Day uh, last week. And in that period, Republicans' faith in the electoral system in terms of like polling that's been done over the last couple of days has dropped by 50%. This is quite staggering. Even though Murdoch outlets have been signalling to the president, you know, your legacy is secure, but time's up, go gracefully, those voices are competing against this incredibly unbound online presence of disinformation. Yes. So... Good distinction there that you make between establishment forces and, in this case, Rupert Murdoch, the obviously the creator of Fox, uh, which was the incubator and echo chamber that helped Donald Trump create his base, is an establishment figure all of a sudden, having been the, the <laughs> man who provided the rebel armies through Fox, the Fox Channel. He's now, in his other role as a, a corporate billionaire, changing tack to become a defender of the status quo and withdrawing support uh, for the madness of the Trump rejectionism. Now, we know, Australians, because we've been watching Rupert Murdoch for decades, not just years, we know this is classic Murdoch. Murdoch will always support uh, the right of centre party but when power is about to change to the non-right of centre party, <laughs> Murdoch changes too because he wants to continue doing business and has to continue doing business. So he's not going to support the Trump madness. Uh, but then you come to, as you say, the madness that has been unleashed and is sustained even without Fox News. Madness can be sustained now uh, with mm. so-called social media, one of the most Orwellian names ever bequeathed on any phenomenon, anti-social media, of course. As you know, the whole... The entire basis for so-called big tech to operate in this rogue way that they've been doing uh, for 20, what is it now, 26, it's about a, roughly yeah. a quarter of a century, is, the, is in the uh, Communications Decency Act of the US Congress 1996, there you go, 24 years, which exonerated them from the responsibilities of being a publisher and said, oh no, we're just, we're just platforms, we have no responsibility mm -hmm. for what we publish. Their actions in the last few days where they're frantically trying to now remove disinformation demonstrates that they are, are starting to act like publishers. Therefore, the, the law and the Democrats are, are pretty keen on taking action against uh, so-called big tech. The Republicans less so. The Republicans just want to change their bias, yes. whereas the Democrats actually want to break up the companies. They're now starting to act like publishers. In a perfect world... The Congress would change that with a stroke of a pen. Those companies could be made publishers. Uh, the so-called social media madness would just would end, end overnight mm -hmm. as they assumed all the responsibilities of publishers. But they're discovering now that they've unleashed a beast that they cannot control. It's too late. And this 
alternative narrative is now up and running to Trump's great advantage. That's how he's going to sustain his revolution. And I think they are beginning to see, and you can tell from their actions, how profoundly they have erred that the short-term benefit of making their billions uh, has been at the cost of being conspirators with Donald Trump in the destruction of American democracy. So that also brings us to Wall Street, of course, which is another big power base in the American political system. And going back to Rupert Murdoch, obviously he's part of that system as well. What does Wall Street do? So, you know, the figures, what do the Jamie Diamonds of the world um, do now? Well, they've already stopped giving Trump campaign money. I don't know how they jump next. The share market in the US, but also more broadly, has demonstrated in recent months during the pandemic in particular just how deeply disjointed the interests, the short-term interests of capital are from the national good. When pandemic deaths peak, when infection rates rise, we've seen Wall Street, uh, when the US hit 100,000 dead, Mm. Wall Street hit a new high. The disconnect is on clear display. I imagine Wall Street will try to pretend that you can just concentrate on the economy and segregate it from the institutional uh, fabric that actually sustains the whole country. They'll try and do that for as long as they can. But I would point out that preppers, billionaire preppers, have been getting their money out of the US for years and building their bunkers in New Zealand. <laughs> so oh. some of them have been waiting for this day. <laughs> also, the Pacific Island, I heard Vanuatu is a hot spot because it right? has so many tiny, tiny islands around the chain. It's perfect billionaire size. So, yes, that's prepping is, is definitely a thing. One of the things that Trump might do that might cross a red line is do something like replace Jerome Powell at the Fed. One of the, I think one of the reasons that the market has remained relatively high through this period is that quantitative easing, that mm. pumping of US, US Treasury bonds bonds through markets, buying up company bonds uh, to, to keep the, the stock market essentially buoyant and liquid in this period. If Trump says things like no stimulus, there's a $3 trillion stimulus package that Wall Street wants passed under a Biden administration, he says no to that. And by the way, I'm going to appoint another loyalist and conspiracy theorist as head of the Fed. That might cross a red line, but it'd be interesting to see how much power Wall Street might have in that in that scenario. Good point. And there may well be an almighty Wall Street crash in response. But how do we expect that will change Trump's behaviour? I don't. It may not. I I think you'd be brave to predict (laughs) that Trump would suddenly discover responsibility just because Wall Street's crashing. Well, Peter, I think we're out of time. Thank you so much for coming in. Pleasure, Anastasia. And uh, good luck to all of us over the next couple of weeks as this plays out. Well, God bless America, as they like to say, and God bless us all. (laughs) We're going to need it. Economic sanctions are being increasingly used as a tool of coercion. The United States is one of the largest users of economic sanctions, frequently applying them unilaterally. But how effective are sanctions and what happens when Australian companies become collateral damage? Michael Shoebridge speaks to David Uren, writer and non-resident fellow with the United States Study Centre, about his report, Economic Coercion, Boycotts and Sanctions, Preferred Weapons of War. All right, well, uh, David Uren, thank you for joining me for a podcast discussion of your recent report about economic coercion. Now, your report covers two big topics, and we're really only going to get into one of those today. So your report covers uh, formal sanctions kinds of economic coercion, 
and also informal economic coercion where Beijing is the leading exponent. But today we're really going to talk more about the formal sanction side of things because it's an underdone topic when it comes to awareness by Australian businesses and other institutions of their obligations. And I think some of the trends you laid out in your report about the increasing use of sanctions machinery uh, by the US administration are sufficiently important to have a really good discussion about it. So uh, if I could just start by asking you to just briefly outline the sanctions machinery that the US has in place, noting that it traces back to Woodrow Wilson, the League of Nations, and then the UN. Australian business is only ever likely to be collateral damage from US sanctions, but um, they are so pervasive and have such international reach that they are a, a risk factor that Australian businesses need to take account. The origins really of US sanctions go back to the, the First World War. Woodrow Wilson was impressed by the effectiveness of the British um, naval blockade of Germany and he believed that this was, was ultimately the British blockade that forced Germany to surrender in the First World War and the blockade had achieved what soldiers in the trenches had failed. So he developed the um, Trading with the Enemy Act, which is still with amendments and you know, some changes, the, the the basis of the framework that's applied in the US today. And he also pushed the League of Nations to um, adopt sanctions, uh, economic sanctions machinery as part of its armory. And that in turn was um, repeated when the United Nations was, was generated. So really the, the frameworks that we see around economic sanctions do go back to the First World War. One thing that struck me with your report is uh, the US uh, sanctions machinery really developed more after the Second World War and has run with more elaboration since then, but UN sanctions didn't really start to be used in any broad way until the end of the Cold War. I thought that was an interesting little fact in, in your analysis. Yeah, and during the Cold War, um, UN sanctions required Security Council approval so that the Soviet Union would object to anything the Americans put up. The British objected to sanctions on South Africa and really there was a no more than a, a pretty limited embargo on um, arms to Rhodesia um, up until the end of the Cold War. It was really um, the first George Bush who uh, had the breakthrough getting both Russia and China to agree to sanctions on Iran um, over its nuclear program. And Russia and um, China both had their own reasons for going along with that. And having done so, uh, the UN wound up with quite an effective set of economic sanctions that um, indeed ultimately forced the Iranian government to um, negotiate um, an agreement uh, over its nuclear program. Now, of course, many people thought it didn't go far enough, but it was an instance where a globally unified approach to economic sanctions did, did prove to be effective. Although I think uh, the point you also make in the report is under the Trump administration, and I think this is likely to be the case into the future regardless of who uh, is, is in the US administration, there's been an increasing use of 
sanctions, unilateral sanctions by America rather than with UN cooperation. And the reason I think that's likely to be a continuing trend, regardless of whether Trump wins the election or not, is that that same um, problem that the UN sanctions machine had during the Cold War is back, which will be great power vetoing of uh, broader UN sanctions. So now turning to that US story of use of unilateral sanctions, this has really accelerated in the last few years, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. Um, I noted some numbers in the New York Times just this morning that were saying that uh, over the Obama administration, there were 2,000 uses of economic sanctions or you know, separate individuals, organisations and countries named. Um, that number over the Trump administration is up to uh, 3,700. At the same time, the, the level of um, penalty has increased pretty significantly. I think 10 years ago, the um, US Office of um, Foreign Assets Control was was getting about $5 million a year in fines. Well, that's up to well north of um, $1 billion US now. So it's, it's, it's a much more pervasive regime. And something that has been interesting is that the US has been moving beyond simply mirroring the kinds of actions that the United Nations takes. So well, the US always had uh, its own sanctions on Cuba. Now, of course, we see sanctions on Iran and Venezuela, neither of which have United Nations backing. But you also see things like the um, US sanctioning the gas pipeline from Siberia to Germany. Um, now, that's that pipeline, as I understand, it, only had about eighty kilometres to complete. It's a you know it's a couple of thousand kilometre long pipeline, and it was down to the closing stages by the time the US put um, sanctions on it. But the effect of US sanctions was that um, the Swiss uh, shipping company that had been laying the actual pipes had to pull out because if it continued, it would be barred from any operation in the US, would be barred from using US dollars. It was a very significant penalty. Um, and that that real impact, that the real impact to Australian businesses uh, getting caught up in being non-compliant with US sanctions is, well, they can lose access to doing business with US companies, but they can also not be able to use the US financial system. And given the American dollar is the global reserve currency, that's an enormous impact if that happens. Um, that makes me think of the company Incitec, which you describe as a, a highly aware, literate company when it comes to sanctions and uh, with all with what looks like good internal infrastructure. But even that company came very close as a business to being in breach of, of US sanctions. Can you just briefly describe that? Because I think it makes it practical for people. Yeah, so Incidec Pivot is um, a, a highly successful Australian, um, indeed Geelong-based um, multinational uh, company, fertiliser business. Um, so it had, in 2017, picked up a load of fertiliser in China that was destined for India. And I think after the ship had left, there were questions being raised about the provenance of this load of fertiliser. It then emerged that it had really come from Iran, um, gone from Iran to China and was now destined for India. And Incitec was concerned that it had 
something like a third of its business in the United States, that business would be potentially jeopardised. It would certainly be exposed to very significant financial penalties. So its response was to um, head, direct the ship to head for the nearest port and offload it. You know, but it's you know it's 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 a kind of risk that many. You know, some of the most successful Australian companies, uh, multinationals, are, are relatively low-tech companies in some ways. You think about a business like Brambles that distributes pallets um, or um, Ansel, which is rubber gloves, or Amcor, which is cardboard boxes or packaging. Or toll, more, toll more, logistics, probably a whole lot of budget. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's very easy for, for companies in those sort of very diverse industries, diverse in terms of their customer base, to find themselves dealing with counterparties that are um, on the US sanctions list and the, the consequences for doing business with those counterparties can be very, very high. So, companies need to have very active management of this risk. Now, David, looking at the Australian government implementation and monitoring around this, because I think, yes, you know, your point about you've got to be literate in the US sanctions machinery and all the guidelines and rules around that. But shouldn't Australian companies be able to look to our government for guidance and assistance? And doesn't our government have some obligations in working with the US sanctions regime, both uh, as, as an international partner of the US, but also to assist our companies navigate this environment? And I think it'd be great if you described the current division of responsibilities between the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and AUSTRAC, the uh, financial regulator. So um, Australia has its own um, sets of of sanctions. We give legal effect to United Nations sanctions and we also have our own autonomous um, sanctions. So Australia has some sanctions on Myanmar, for example, which are not United Nations. There are a couple of other programs that we have that are very much our own. And these are regulated by DFAT. It's really a section out of its the, the DFAT legal department. Throughout 2019, there was some discussion as to whether Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade was really the appropriate home or whether it should go to um, the um, Minister for Home Affairs, Peter Dutton's super ministry, um, which has accumulated a lot of the legal regulatory machinery and under which Austrac sits. But DFAT held on and this year formally named its um, office the Australian Sanctions Office. So, you know, it puts out a um, computerised program that um, uh, companies can subscribe to that will let it know what, let them know what Australian um, uh, sanctions are, but it's it is a pretty ineffective organisation. It has um, uh, Australian regulators are required to do their own regulatory review, and the latest one from from DFAT um, 
from the sanctions office um, uh, acknowledged that it really depends upon the AFP to um, to prosecute any actions. Um, I think it's got a staffing of around seven. It's really it's it's only prosecutions to date have been of someone of, of individuals one accused of um, selling parts to North Korea and another involved in um, some Iranian shipments, but mm. nothing. Whereas the cult trust with Austrac on um, money laundering and um, potentially terrorist financing, the, the two big banks, the Westpac and the Commonwealth, the Westpac already being fined $1.3 billion. So it just seems to me that Austrac is a more effective regulator. Now, I'm not proposing, I'm not trying to advocate that the Australian government finding more and more Australian businesses, but what I think your report sets out is there needs to be a much better regulatory machine in Australia's implementation of sanctions and making sure we're complying with US sanctions. And really, that the better machine seems to be more that regulatory mindset that Austrac has rather than the kind of policy mindset that DFAT has. Would that be a, a right yeah. characterization? No, absolutely. So, Austrac um, is charged with. Uh, regulating adherence to the guidelines set up by the Financial Action Task Force. Now, that's a, a multilateral organisation. It's kind of loosely affiliated with the OECD, but it was originally set up to uh, counter money laundering. Then with the outbreak of terrorism, terrorist financing came into, uh, into its purview and it has the ability to uh, impose sanctions. It was really Westpac was um, the crime that Westpac committed and for which it has, has paid a $1.3 billion fine um, was that it was essentially renting out its bank identity, its BSB, to other correspondent banks saying you can run your small transactions using our infrastructure. Um, but some of these correspondent banks were dealing with sanctioned entities, so there was a risk that international sanctions would be broken using the Australian payments system. That, in essence, was the offence. Now, there's obviously been um, quite correct focus on um, potential use of, um, you know, by pedophiles of the, the Westpac payment system, but uh, really at the root of it was the, um, the failure to uh, monitor for sanctions compliance. Mm. Now, David, we're, we're pretty much out of time. So uh, I, I just wanted to very quickly uh, just mention some of the things that Australian companies could do. So I think your recommendations about a much tighter implementation of sanctions uh, to, to remove the growing risk for uh, Australian companies and entities to breach US sanctions, I think that's absolutely right. But you talk a little bit about what companies should do themselves, things like management commitment to implement the sanctions, um, having a compliance unit with resources and an authority to enforce that, and particularly a formal process of risk assessment around vetting new customers and suppliers and acquired businesses. Is that the kind of future for any Australian commercial entity that has significant international trading directions? Yeah, indeed. And um, I think 
companies would be well advised to check out the US Office of Foreign Assets Control website. They post there an excellent set of guidelines for what their expectations are of business compliance. And uh, OFAC makes it very clear that the level of penalty they will impose on any breach of sanctions will be heavily influenced by whether a company had a, a, a correct compliance framework in place. And the absence of a correct compliance framework will, will result in much heavier penalties. So um, it's, a, it's a very good, clearly set out set of guidelines. And I think it's, it's well worth um, uh, Australian business uh, paying attention to that. Great. Well, look, thank you so much, David, for having time to talk this through. Uh, this won't be the last time that we talk about econ economic coercion, and I'm pretty sure it won't be the last time we talk about sanctions machinery either. So thanks very much, David. Thank you. October 31st marked the 20th anniversary of UN Security Council Resolution 1325 and the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Today, the UN recognises that women's participation in peacekeeping operations remains too low and there are ambitious goals in place to increase women's participation in peacekeeping by 2028. Lisa Sharland speaks to Deb Warren-Smith, manager of the LC Initiative with over 20 years experience in the military. They discuss what the LC Initiative is doing to increase the participation of uniformed women in UN peacekeeping operations. Deb, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks very much. It's great to be here from uh, from New York. Well, that's that's one of the reasons that we're, we're keen to have a chat to you because you're undertaking quite an interesting role there working with UN Women at the moment um, as part of the ELSI initiative. I want to come to that in a minute, but I thought it might be helpful to provide our listeners with a bit of a, a scene setter in terms of what's been going on in New York over the last week or so. We've had the 20-year anniversary of the Security Council's adoption of its first resolution on women, peace and security. Every year, as it did last week, it holds an open debate. Again, this one was virtual this year. Um, and we had Russia as president of the council uh, putting forward its own resolution on women, peace and security, which was quite surprising to anyone who's been following this space for the last 20 years and probably not surprising that the resolution was not adopted. In fact, 10, 10 members of the council abstained on the resolution um, with concerns about the negotiating process and also the content itself that it was pushing back on, on some of the gains that have been achieved on women, peace and security over the last 20 years. Now, of course, Deb, one of the aspects of the Women, Peace and Security agenda is focused on women's participation and particularly participation in UN peacekeeping operations. And about three years ago, the Canadians at a ministerial event they hosted on peacekeeping announced the establishment of the ELSI initiative. And this brings me to the work that you're doing at the moment um, as, as managing um, some of the work around that program. So I thought I might kick off and, and ask you to tell us a little bit about what you do and what the LC initiative actually is. And I should probably um, let people know that, of course, Australia has committed um, US $1 million to the LC initiative. Um, it was announced by the Defence Minister in May. So it's probably a good time to be talking a little bit about what that might involve. Thank you very much, Lisa. It certainly is. So the, the broader LC initiative is a Canadian initiative designed to increase the number of women, so that's civilian and military and police or uniformed women in who, who deploy and are employed on peace operations. 
And under the, we call it the the LC initiative umbrella. So underneath that initiative, um, that umbrella, there's a range of different initiatives that Canada um, have been leading, including advocacy and outreach. Um, they have some bilateral partnerships. They also support project and research funding, including the Geneva Centre for Security Sector Governance and a very detailed report that they did into looking at barriers to uniformed women in, in peacekeeping operations or peace operations. And then the other initiative under that Canadian broader umbrella is the ELSI Initiative Fund, or the EIF as we call it. I do go to great pains to point out that we are one of the pillars of that, um, that broader initiative, but we are specifically a fund that was designed to be an innovative fund to fund countries, troop and police contributing countries, to design and, and be resourced to design projects to really identify um, what are some of the barriers to women deploying, uniformed women deploying on peace operations, and um, to drive that long-term institutional change within those organisations. So the fund was launched last year and we are progressing through the first funding round as we speak. Unfortunately, COVID has put a COVID overlay um, on top of everything that the fund is doing and probably, you know, in, in every aspect um, of peacekeeping, COVID has, has put a, a, an overlay over that. And the biggest overlay for, the, for us at, at this stage is delaying a lot of um, projects being formalised and project plans submitted to the fund. Nonetheless, we are working with some countries to get their applications across the line and to fund projects for those countries to really look at getting down to the nub of the, the barriers and addressing those to women in both police and military organisations. So just on that note, what are we um, talking about when we're referring to barriers to, to women's participation? And I guess it might be worthwhile noting here that when we're talking about women's participation in peacekeeping, I think the, the latest figures, you can probably tell me better than, than um, anyone, but, you know, uh, just over 5% in terms of women's participation across the, the military serving in UN peacekeeping, um, and I think similarly on the police is, is much higher, probably around about 15%. Um, so what are, what are we talking about when, when we refer to, to barriers? What does that mean? So when we're talking about barriers, we're looking at um, there's a range of barriers that, that decaf um, in their study, their global study that they identified. And they centre around, for example, where women do not have equal opportunity to deploy. So that may be things such as the lack of information about deployment opportunities. Um, and some of those, you know, they are because traditionally it has been men who have deployed on peace operations across both police and military uh, opportunities. Um, those networks, they're often favoured. It's like recruits like. And DCAF also identified there were there was a range of corruption, bribery, patronage in the deployment selection processes um, across many countries. And also there's this view that women need protection and are not protectors in themselves. So that kind of essentialised view um, so that's, you know, looking at um, number one, where women do not have the equal opportunity to deploy. 
sometimes the deployment criteria actually excludes women. For example, in some of the selection criteria for the police, there's a minimum of five years required for an individual police officer to deploy, whereas a country may turn that around and say, well, actually, we want, we want them to have eight years. So we ask the question, well, why? What is, what is that extra three years? What does that give you when the UN is already stating that they are comfortable with five years' experience prior to being nominated to deploy? And those issues are the same military and police um, where we're looking at the deployment criteria that excludes women. We also there look at a, a lack of learning opportunities for core deployment competencies. So some of the barriers that have been identified in the projects that have been submitted to the ELSI fund includes, you know, what we would consider are the basics of the requirements to deploy. So we're looking at driving skills, language skills, IT skills and weapon handling skills. And in countries where those types of skills are not taught to women when they first join that organisation or, or are recruited to that organisation, you know, how do we get countries and their police and military organisations to actually identify, well, that's one of the biggest barriers. So, so let's open all of those opportunities up and provide the same opportunities to men and women. I could talk a lot about many barriers, but, um, you know, others are family constraints. Women are not treated equally on deployments. And then some women have such unfortunate situations that occur whilst they're on deployment with sexual harassment that they come back with negative opinions of deployment and then that turns other women off by putting their hand up to deploy. How receptive have, have countries been to the initiative in the, in the sense that certainly looking at barriers to deployment within particular countries is probably somewhat sensitive and I understand there might be some pilot studies under the way. So, so what countries are sort of engaged in this process at the moment? So DCAF are conducting a pilot, or they're at the, they're finalising, I should say, the pilot of their barrier uh, assessment pilot. And they've been working with a range of countries with either the police, the military or the gendarmerie. So in some countries, the gendarmerie come underneath the, the Ministry of Defence and the police obviously uh, come under the Ministry of Interior. So when we're talking about the DCAF barrier assessment study, they've almost concluded the work with Zambia. Um, and we actually, we have a webpage, so I would encourage um, Australian listeners to have a look at the webpage and I can provide the, the web address to that. It's elsiefund.org and that is it. So not as in Lima Charlie, but Elsie as in Echo Lima Sierra Indigo Echo and then fund. So it's all one word, .org. And just on a concluding note, Deb, given you've had many, many decades experience working in the Australian military, what are some of your reflections on how perhaps Australia can be engaging with this initiative? I think there's a couple of ways that Australia could engage with this initiative. And this is looking more locally across the, um, the Asia-Pacific region. You know, we've had conversations with uh, UN Women Office in East Timor looking at how the Timorese Defence Force may be engaged in this area. And even though East Timor are not current contributors to 
UN peace operations, which is one of the requirements for the fund. There is no reason why research institutions in Australia, for example, Monash or Sydney University, couldn't use the barrier assessment methodology that DCAF have developed, which has just been published on the DCAF webpage in the last couple of weeks. There's no reason why an academic institution or a research partner in Australia could not use that and partner with any military or police organisation within our region, uh, within the Indo-Pacific region, and work hand-in-hand with them to do that. The other way I think that Australia could very much work with countries in the Australian region would be where countries are looking to to develop a proposal to submit to the ELSI fund, would be to partner with them and provide them that expertise in developing the proposal. What we are finding is that some of the pen holders in some countries do not, for you know, for many reasons, they don't have the expertise in developing a proposal to submit to the fund. They may not have the technical expertise in terms of workforce planning or HR planning. So those are some areas, two kind of key areas where I think Australia really could work with countries to either work on the barrier assessment and help them with that or developing a proposal for the ELSI Fund. Look, thanks so much, Deb. It's some incredibly interesting work that you're doing there in New York and we wish you all the best with it going forward. Thank you very much, Lisa, and thank you for for your time today. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week.